Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and another episode of The Yoke with Doak. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Every stroke counts on the scorecard and every penny counts in the market. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to straightforward pricing with no surprises, so you're free to swing with confidence. Visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg. Member SIPC. In this episode with Tom Doak, we talk with Tom about how difficult it is renovating a course compared to restoring one and his new project in Ireland at the Rossapena Resort, St. Patrick's. As a reminder, check out our pro shop. We have some new towels up in the, uh, in the shop, as well as hats, t-shirts, polos, great gear for summertime. Uh, visit the pro shop at thefriedegg.com. And without further ado, here's Tom Doe. Famously candid dope doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. So here's a question from Ethan Zimmon. Um, do you anticipate we're quickly approaching a time where new fresh untouched sites are going to be extinct and we'll have to focus on blowing up existing courses to make new courses oh well a lot of people told me that was that was going to be my fate 30 years ago when i got into the business that all the all the great new sites are gone. <laughs> not so much that that was before Google Earth. Yeah, <laughs> not so much that um, you're going to have to just rebuild old golf courses. But you know, I mean, the conventional wisdom when I work for Pete Dye is, you know, get him a swamp or a piece of desert or a garbage dump or whatever, and he'll turn it into something really cool, like the TPC at Sawgrass. So you don't need to spend money on finding a good piece of land. And, you know, that's why nobody was doing that 30 years ago is it's like, oh, this would be easier. We wouldn't we wouldn't have to try so hard to we wouldn't have to spend so much on the land. We wouldn't have to wait so long on the permits to make it happen. And so to Ethan's question, I think for sure. You know, if you're a golf developer that's getting in the business to try to really make money at it. Buying an old course and tearing it down and starting over is a way better business model because you don't, because it's already permitted as a golf course. You don't really need anything. You can start, you can buy it one day and start construction almost the next day in a lot of places, you know, that speeds up the, you know, that speeds up the time frame by a couple of years. Whereas when you're, when you're Mike Kaiser and you're, you know, you're trying to get permission to build on a new piece of land down the road from Dornick, he's what, two or three years into that now. And he still doesn't know if he's spent a lot of money on environmental consultants and everybody else. And he's paid Bill Core to do routings and he's still not sure he's going to be able to do anything. 
you know, from a business standpoint, that's really hard to swallow. As a business model, it's like not many people want to do that. The only kind of people that want to do that are somebody like Mike or Rick Kane or, you know, a lot of my clients. They want to do something really special. And if they want to do something really special, they want to start from scratch. They don't want to start from some failed golf course. <laughs> do you think you could do something special from a failed golf course? And if so, what would you what would you look for? Well, the hard part about redesigning is whatever is there, everything that's happened there since the golf course got built reinforces what's there. They planted trees. Now the trees are getting mature, but the trees also form corridors on that bad routing. So it's really hard. You know, if you looked at the topo map without any of the trees and said, you know, this would really be better if all the holes ran north and south instead of east and west. But they planted trees around all the holes running east and west. It's like impossible to convert that because there's just too many things built in your way for that to really make any sense. So, like, it's not a failed golf course. This we just this last project we built before Houston was rebuilding a course at the National in Australia. And it's actually a project that I looked at like 20 years before and tried to do a routing for. But they hired Greg Norman to do one of the courses and Peter Thompson to do the other one. And, you know, the club's been very successful, but the Thompson course, the Ocean course, was always like the third best course. They have an older course that Trent Jones Jr. did. Norman's course is really well regarded. Thompson's course was never... You know, it was nobody's favorite. It didn't do nearly as much visitor play. Um, so after, you know, two or three years ago, they they asked me if I would take a look at it and see if I could f- suggest some things to make it better. And I think they were they were really only thinking, you know, I would change a few holes. But I went out and. You know, I was already familiar with the land from 20 years ago, but I couldn't go back to... I looked at the routing we did 20 years ago, and the routing I did would have been too tangled up with the course that Norman built. So I couldn't do what I'd planned. Um, so I had to... But, you know, I just... it's an o, the, the key to it was it was an open site, and nobody planted any trees or done anything to change it. So on the second hole... You know, they they built a par four, and they were because the third tee was going to be up and up the hill in the corner. They tried to build themselves a green two thirds of the way up this pretty steep slope, and they shaped the hell out of it to try to get it so it wasn't so severe. And you know, if you were short, the ball would roll back down the fairway, but it still did. So they had to reshape it again. Um, you know, just smacking straight into the contours, kind of the wrong way, in order to make the next hole work out. Um, and right away I, I looked at that hole, I go, this is, you know, the first hole's fine, but this hole, I gotta, you can't have the green there. There's this little pocket down to the left where just past the landing area. And I thought, you know, that'd be a really cool short par four with just the green right in there. And then, okay. But if I did that, then I can't make everybody walk way up the hill to that old third tee. I honestly didn't like the old third hole very much anyway. So I started looking around, and I'm like, 
well, you could just put the tee behind the green on two and play back toward what's now 17 green. That's a pretty good looking hole. And before I knew it, I'd rerouted like half the golf course, you know, like found new green sites for, I think nine of the 18, something like nine of the 18 holes, you know, the green is 40 yards away or more from where, where it was last time. And you know, just the way I just described two and three. So, you know, I, I, I cut into the back nine on the third hole. So I changed the sequence completely just trying to get myself out of that corner where the new second hole was. So it's a very different golf course. Um, I'm looking forward to going back and play it. They've, 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 you know, it's winter there now. They, they, they started member play late in the fall, like two months ago. Um, but they really haven't had a ton of visitor play at all. They just had a, they just let the members out on it a little bit before it got nasty. So this, you know, coming up here October and November, they'll really be back on the golf course full time. And I'll probably I'll probably go in November and play it um for some member event thing. But I think it turned out to be a pretty dramatic golf course. So, you know, it's kinda like it's it's more dramatic than I thought it was going to be when we started. Um, it's certainly way bigger change than they ever visualized in the first place. And, you know, to their credit, when I came back to them with that plan, they were like, Ooh, well, that's, that's a lot more than we were thinking, but how much would this cost? And, and, um, you know, can you, can you help write this up? so we can so the members will get excited about it um you know the other thing that made it happen was they've got 54 holes they actually have 72 holes they they merged with another club that's up closer to melbourne so they have a they have a course up closer to the city too so it's it's no big yank for them to close a golf course for six months and take it out of play they've still got plenty of other places to play you know that's the thing that holds you back on most existing courses to really make changes, you got to close. And most, you know, most existing clubs do not want to close the golf course. So that means if you won't close the golf course, when you're remodeling, that means you're not going to do the two most important things. You're not going to change the routing and you're not going to change the greens. And then all you're doing is playing around with the bunkers. You're kind of, you know, it's kind of like rearranging the furniture. (laughs) You're not really changing things that much. a good way to look at um with taking an old course how is the work different from say a new build or also conversely a restoration well the interesting thing to me the national wound up getting a great bargain out of us for how much we charged them to rebuild everything because i just looked at what it was going to take to build these new greens and the places that I wanted to put them. And they were all great natural green sites. It, you know, it took Brian Schneider a day or two to build most of those greens. I think he was posting about how quickly the greens were getting done, as I remember. But, but tearing up the old ones, you know, they'd done a lot more work to build the old ones. And we basically had to undo everything that they'd done to make it go away visually. So the destruction part of it was way way more work than i visualized that it was and you know 
I mean, realistically, if I was a contractor, I would charge more, well, quite a bit more for that than just building a new course. Because you got to you got to do everything you're going to do to shape a new course, but then you've also got to go f- fix a bunch of things from the old course that are just you know that old green is kind of in the middle of a fairway now, so you can't ignore it. You've got to you got to knock down the edges and make it look like it wasn't there. It's interesting because that you know, in a lot of cases, people like Ethan wondering this, they're thinking about all these golf courses that were built from, you know, in the seventies, eighties, nineties. And those courses were also expensive to build because of all the earthwork they did. They didn't go find the natural green sites. Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, for Ethan's question, you know, you'd be better finding an old golf course to renovate because there's at least not so much of that, you know, whatever they built, they didn't spend so much time or money building it. So it, it'll be easier to make that part go away. <laughs> so it, it, we've talked a little bit about the new project at in New Zealand. Um, is there anything else you guys are working on on the horizon? Well, there's a lot on the horizon. The one that we're going to get to the sum, start on this summer is uh, the St. Patrick's project in Ireland, which I've been reluctant to talk about because I didn't want to jinx the thing from happening. We've looked at projects in Ireland a couple times before and they always fell through in some odd circumstances. And, and, you know, it's been, I mean, you know, that's always been on my bucket list of things to do is build a golf course in Ireland, a a Lynx course in Ireland. And I thought I was going to do it twice before and they didn't happen. And this one, you know, um, I've known the the Casey family that owns Rossapena Resort in the Northwest for like oh probably eleven or twelve years now. Larry Lambrick, the photographer, introduced me to them originally. Um, they were they were redoing. They originally had thirty six holes at Rossapena, and one of the nines, one of the older nines, used to like cross roads it used to cross two roads going out and two the same two roads coming back in the course of nine holes to loop in with the what they call the old tom morris nine that runs along the beach and you know the place is getting busier and people were building holiday homes and those roads were getting really busy and that those not that nine was just too dangerous i mean you're just hitting across traffic in awkward you know 150 yards off the tee in really awkward places where you're likely to hit a car so it just it was dangerous and it didn't work and they they had just enough land on the seaside of the road to squeeze in nine holes there so they didn't have to cross the road anymore and pat ruddy actually built the nine holes but they were they were still growing it in and they didn't you know, he had kind of like not built any bunkers. He was going to leave that to later. You know, they'd done it on a shoestring really. And, you know, they were, they asked us if we'd look at it and see if we had some suggestions to make it a little more dramatic. And, you know, I gave him a couple of ideas and Eric Iverson basically spent a couple of months over there at one point, just redoing green complexes on three or four of those holes adding some bunkers and making it a little better. Um, But from the, well, at the beginning, I think Larry thought 
you know, maybe I would help them do some work to their second course, their Sandy Hills, which is a really dramatic, really pretty, really hard modern golf course. Um, you see it when you see pictures of Rasa Pena, it's usually of Sandy Hills. It's up in some really big dunes and the fairways are mostly elevated well above the old Tom Morris nine. So you've got great views of the bay and the mountains around the bay. I mean, it's a spectacular looking place, but it is a heck of a hard golf course to play in the wind. And of course in Northwest Ireland is windy all the time. So, you know, so the, the feedback on the Sandy Hills course is all, you know, some people love it cause it's spectacular and pretty, but a lot of people lose a lot of balls and get really frustrated with it too. And and they are sort of handcuffed on how much they could do about that because they're right in the edge of uh, land with a bunch of environmental restrictions. So it was like, you, you know, you're not allowed to go out and cut the rough all down way out in there and, and soften the shapes. Just can't do it. So it was limited on whether they could really do much to change the golf course. They've started mowing it more. They've taken out a couple of the bunkers in front of the greens over the years. Um, was still a hard golf course. But anyway, you know, right when I first met them, there was this, the property next door to them is this place called St. Patrick's. And back in the 90s, um, when the EU was forming and Ireland was going to be part of the EU, um, a couple of the architects in Ireland, Eddie Hackett and Pat Ruddy and a couple other guys, went around to all the little clubs and said, you know, any of you that own any more of this Dunesland, you should go build something on it right now because once we're part of Europe, they're going to draw a circle around it and say you can't touch that anymore. And they were dead right. I mean, the you know the European designation is a special area of conservation. And they pretty much just drew a red line around every piece of untouched Dunesland in Ireland and said no can't do anything there you know like can't even just mow it out <laughs> one of those projects i looked at in ireland years ago is not much more than mowing out something like that and it was still a no or it was still so so long of a permit question you know in theory you could get special permission to do something but nobody ever has and it's kind of what you, you just touched on earlier that mike kaiser's been dealing with in scotland at uh, yes, Britain is a little. Yeah. Britain's a little different. You know, they insisted even before the whole Brexit thing. When they joined Europe, one of the things they insisted on, in addition to their own currency, was their own environmental rules. Mm -hmm. We're not going to let everybody in Brussels tell us what we can and can't do here. So, the designation's different, and that's you know, like if Trump, if if Trump's Aberdeen project was in Ireland, he couldn't have done it. Okay. They never would have got permission. It wouldn't have been up to a government vote. It would have been a bunch of bureaucrats just saying no and no recourse. Um, so, so this, so somebody built actually Eddie Hackett and a young woman that worked for him built thirty six holes on this St. Patrick's site twenty twenty five years ago now uh, for a hotel owner in the next town over from Rossapena. Put up the money to do it. And it was a beautiful piece of land. It was kind of 
trying to get 36 holes on the land. It was really crammed in. There were a bunch of, there's a big hill in the middle of it that a bunch of the holes were just fairways running up and down the hill. It looks crazy from it. When you look at it from a distance, it's like, really? <laughs> just up, down, up, down. And, and a pretty good, you know, holes going up and down 60 feet from tee to green. Um, but, when, you know, when Ireland became part of Europe and they drew the red lines, there was a golf course there. So they just drew the red bubble to away from it. And it's the land is still fair game. So you can change St. Patrick's. So for years, this golf course has done like almost no play. And 10 years ago, when I met the Casey's and things in Ireland were really booming, some Irish developer had hired Jack Nicholas to, he was going to do 36 holes there. And he actually started. They spent about two weeks in construction in the fall of 2007 or 2008. I can't remember which. And then the financial crisis and the, the financial crisis hit Ireland and basically the contractor, did, you know, the, the developer pulled out, the contractor didn't get paid, construction stopped completely. And the thing has just sat there ever since and kind of they had torn up three or four holes. They're just kind of been blowing around in the wind for several years <laughs> with nobody, nobody doing anything about it. And of course the only, the only potential buyer for it was the Casey's because they're sitting right Cause next they're, to it. Because they're, they're right next to it. So they, it, but they, they weren't in any hurry because they knew nobody, was, nobody else was going to bid against them. So I don't know how long they, I, you know, they waited three or four years until the price came down to something that was reasonable for them and probably not a whole lot of money um, and bought the property. And then, you know, they, they've still been, you know, they've been, looking at it for years and I've been looking at it for years with them of, you know, what could we do on this site? But, you know, the golf economy in Ireland has bounced back slowly, but surely since the recession, but for a while there, it wasn't very good. Um, so it's taken a long time to get to the point where they're like, okay, you know, now seems to be the time where this will work. And, and partly it's that the, um, Frank senior, uh, his sons, um, John and Frank Jr., are both in their early mid thirties, and of course they're just gung ho to build this thing. They're like, they're so excited, but you know that they're 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 be, they've been being groomed for a long time to take over the place for the next generation, and they're they're still not quite running the whole show yet. Although they kind of do. John runs the hotel. Frank runs the golf operation. They've been doing that for a few years. Um, you know, and so it's, so it's all been convincing their dad, you know, let's, let's really do this now. Um, and we're finally ready to go. And, um, the, the one thing I said to Mr. Casey in the beginning, you know, I mean, we, we had way more than enough land for 18 holes easily. You know, it was, it was always tight for the 36, one of the one of the, th one of the two golf courses was 5,500 yards or something. Mm -hmm. And of course there were a lot of parallel fairways up yeah. and down that hill that weren't really that attractive. And, you know, they looked at, well, maybe just do 27 holes, you know, and like, like tack nine holes onto the, the old Tom Morris nine and then do 18 holes inland of that. 
and I thought about it and thought about it. And I, you know, I've been working on routings for a long time, but you know, finally I said to Mr. Casey, you know, you've got 45 holes now because they still use that. They shortened up that, that old nine that went across the roads, but they still use it. Um, you know, and yeah, you could have a, you could have two more 18 holes, but you know, does two more good 18 hole golf courses really do much for you other than increase the overall overall volume? And Rasa Penn is not the easiest place to get to. So, you know, thinking they're going to double the number of people that go there now is that's going to take a while at <laughs> the best case. Um, you know, I, I just said, you know, w- one of the things I've learned from Mike Kaiser is, you never worry about what the next golf course is going to be. You just focus on making this one as good as you can. Cause that's the only way, the only way you're going to do another one is if this one is really successful. So, you know, it's weird in Bandon while they're building their, not counting the preserve, they're building their fifth 18 hole course now, and they'll have five different clubhouses for those five, <laughs> which is pretty insane. Anybody in planning school will tell you, well, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. You know, they should, they should all operate out of two clubhouses, but the golf courses are better because they don't. Yeah, because they each are an individual because, you know, they were thought of as individual projects rather than a cohesive unit, right? Right. Because, well, because they were, because nobody had to compromise and make their 18th hole get yeah. back to that clubhouse, even though they didn't really want a hole there. Yeah. And then, so what you, you Bill, and you did at Streamsong worked because it was a collaborative process where you had the single clubhouse, but then the black course has its own clubhouse. Right. Because it's, it's, you know, right. if Gil had to somehow get back to that, it, it wouldn't have worked. No, we we had enough trouble just making our you know neither of our courses come back to the clubhouse at the ninth hole. That's what, I mean, one of the one of the big reasons they pushed to get the black course going as soon as they did was, the you know in the winter when the when the golf day is not too long for thirty six holes, they didn't have very many starting points. Mm-hmm. You know they couldn't they didn't want to start people on number seven on the blue or the red course that much, and. You know, so you, get, you just got two starting points and you can only get a certain number of tee times out there that they're going to have room to clear and have lunch and play 18 holes in the afternoon. It's not, you know, band in summer is the big season. You could play 54 holes a day in the summer. Yeah. But stream song, the busiest season is like the shortest days of the year and getting people around twice is hard to do. So having another golf course that has two starting points is a real help for that. Mm-hmm. The uh, so I, I th- it's interesting you know had the opportunity to probably build thirty six holes but talk him into eighteen great holes yeah I mean that's a I mean from a from a golf course fan that's a I mean who doesn't want great I think that's actually smart and longer because it's like people are going to make an excursion to play a great golf course. You know, well, I think for for Rasa Pena, I think the real the business model is you know let's let's get different customers to come. You know, if this if this is a really really good golf course, 
you know, more people will come from America than do now. Uh, frankly, a lot of their business now is from Europe instead of from America. You know, there are people, there are Americans that are starting to, you know, give up on the southwest of Ireland route because it's so so busy in the summer and look for different places in Ireland or Scotland that they can go that aren't quite, you know, where you, you just see nothing but Americans the whole two weeks you're there. <laughs> it's, that's kind of weird. But that does happen, you know, in La Hinch and St. Andrews and a few places around the UK and Ireland. Um, and the northwest of Ireland, you don't really see that at all. You get Swedes, you get Germans, you get English people um, and Irish people from Dublin. Um, but, you know, if they can get on Americans' radar, you know, there are a bunch of pretty good little golf courses up there now, not just the ones at Rossapena, but Port Salon, which is not that far away. Sligo's there, right? Sligo's kind of two or three hours to the south. I mean, Port Rush is actually uh -huh. closer than Sligo is. Uh -huh. Port Rush is only a couple hours to the, to the east of Rossapena. Um, so... You know, ideally, they would tie into the more people that are going to County Down and Port Rush, mm -hmm. but but also they they might be able to tie into the people that are looking to get away from the the crowds and the super expensive places and go somewhere where it's a little more affordable and the golf is still really good and you feel like you're in the countryside of Ireland mm -hmm. instead of you know you don't see tour buses full of golfers. And it's, it's kind of almost like the new uh, new frontier. Yeah. N new old frontier. Yeah. Well, in theory, it ought to be easier to get people to get there than Tasmania. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Or, um, or uh, New Zealand, like we were talking about at the beginning of this. Right. What, right. Uh, so it's, it's funny. You know, I've realized over the years, you know, all these golf courses I build, that they kind of compete with each other now. Um for people's attention and for, you know, I mean, that the golf business has changed so much. Um, you know, I used to think that a place like Bandon Dunes, well, that doesn't compete with private clubs. Absolutely. It does now, you know, guys, your age are like, why would I want to pay $5,000 a year to play this golf course over and over again? when I don't have time to play over and over again, when I'm home, you know, there's a lot of people instead of, instead of joining a club, let's just take our money and go play, go make two or three really cool golf trips a year and call it good. And then, you know, maybe I'll play with my buddy who is a member there once or twice in the summer, um, when I'm home, but that's about all the time I've got when I'm home anyway. Uh, so, you know, so all these destination places compete with clubs and all of the destination clubs, the Ballyneals and the Rock Creeks and the Dismal Rivers, they all compete with each other. You know, even if they're 500 or 1,000 miles apart, they're still trying to get the guys from San Francisco to come there. So <laughs> same national members. Right. Yeah. There's a ton of national member clubs trying to woo the same limited number of guys who are in the market to join a national club. It's a tough market right now. You know, you see a lot of consolidation where 
you know, they're joining forces and, you know, somebody's buying up a few clubs to, you know, be able to offer a package instead of just one course. Yeah. So, um, with, uh, with this course, um, St. Patrick's where in terms of the landscape, you described it a little bit. I'm, I'm guessing that we're talking more of the dramatic seaside, um, golf that we talked about, you know, where at Terridi you have a little bit of the ocean, but then you're playing up. This is more all up on the ocean there. No, no, there's a lot of variety of the property. You know, it's, it's more than, you know, we have like 350 acres we're working with, I think 300 or 350. Um, the actual coastline, just like the old Tom Morris nine, you know, along the coastline is pretty low. And then there's a little barrier dune before the beach. So if you're playing pretty close to the coast, you don't see the water very much at all. Mm -hmm. You see the water more when you're back away from it a little bit, you know, either playing toward it or just up at more elevation where even if you're pretty far away from it, you're looking right out at the bay. So some of the most dramatic looking holes are the holes back inland. There's, there's, it's funny where they, where they didn't draw that red circle around the golf course right at the fence line of the golf course on the first two or three holes, there is some beautiful pasture ground, but rolling sandy pasture ground with these giant blowouts. Like just there's, there's room for another golf hole to the right of the fence. Mm -hmm. We can't build it because that yeah. they drew the red line there. <laughs> so we can't touch that land. All, all Eddie and had. All to, I would have all, to do is mow that. Yeah. <laughs> all Eddie had to do was take one of those holes playing up the hill and put it over there. Well, it was a different farmer. Okay, and that farmer wasn't interested in selling off where he grazed his sheep and cows, so it didn't happen. And because it didn't happen in 1995, it can't happen now. Uh -huh. So, but you, you know, when you play the early holes, you're looking at that, and when you play some of the finishing holes coming down the hill at the end, you're also looking at that in the distance and it's just like a magnet. You know, you got the bay on one side and you got those dunes on the other and you're looking at the dunes. <laughs> That's how good they are. Um, but in between, um, instead of going up and down the hill, I kind of go around the hill and, and up the backside. And uh, so the property has a lot of, there's like, you know, like, like a lot of good courses, if you just went out and wandered around the property in your brain, it kind of divides up into three or four different feel areas that have a different feel to them. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to all those areas in the course of 18 holes. That's cool. So it, it'll be, so you're accomplishing, you know, building in Ireland. And we talked a little bit about Renaissance Club. How, how's like the topography different from from Scotland at Renaissance Club to, to this site, St. Patrick's in Ireland? Uh, well, those, those, the newer holes at the Renaissance Club that we got permission to build after the fact, and I should go back a second, that started, um, the original property for the Renaissance Club, when the Servatis bought it, it was already like, there was a planning application already in progress to make a golf course out of it. The, I mean, they actually, they didn't buy the land. They, they're leasing the land from the estate of the Duke of Hamilton. Okay. The Duke's estate is, are partners in the, in the deal. And so they had filed a 
a planning permit to put a golf course. And when we, when we started doing the planning, um, you know, the Duke owned right up to the stone wall along the eighth hole at Muirfield. And, and the six, there's, there's one at the sixth also. And Muirfield was a little nervous about an American neighbor owning right up to the wall. Like there's trees on, on our side of the wall, but for all Muirfield knew, we'd knock down all the trees and build a hole right there and wave at the members of Muirfield. And they really didn't want that to happen. And obviously my client wasn't going to do that. But Muirfield asked, can we trade you some property? Can, will you just give us that strip of trees along our wall, so a buffer? And actually they put the ninth tee back for the, for the open, back on some of the property they, they swapped with us. Um, and for that, they swapped, they traded us some land in the dunes on the very point of the property that's some of the prettiest view you've ever seen. Muirfield actually owns like another 200 acres of dunes along the water. It's an unbelievable piece of land for a golf course, but the, the they would probably never get planning permission to do it. Um, there's a bunch of the dunes them the formation of the dunes themselves is considered important and distinctive, so you couldn't you couldn't like bulldoze into a sand dune. And then there's also, when we tried to get permission to build on the land they traded us, there are these big patches of like mossy stuff mm -hmm. that is important for biodiversity and there's not too many places like it. So, you know, there were big, you know, there were just big like quilt patches of places that they didn't want us to touch. And it was like, we were trying to figure out what we could do while avoiding all these areas. But then I think one of the reasons Muirfield was actually interested in the trade was they let us figure out if it was possible to get permits to do anything out there. But So we made the trade right away, but we couldn't ask, you know, we couldn't ask to change the plan for the golf course that was in the zoning process because once we changed the boundary of the land that we wanted to work on, it would be back to square one and start over. And the, <laughs> they're like, it's taking five years to get to this point we cannot do that so will you you know so lay out an 18 hole golf course on what we've got now but try to think if we got permission later on to build a couple of holes you know how you would throw something out of this routing to tie those in and still have an 18 hole golf course um so when i routed the renaissance club the original first three holes came right back to the clubhouse. The fourth went out, and the fifth came back, and the sixth goes out again. So if I came up with a two-hole solution or a three-hole solution, I, I had some I could yank out and make it work. And, of course, it wound up being more complicated than that when we, when we did everything because they, you know, we, only, we, only, we kind of built two new holes, but the original first three holes, even though we liked them, were kind of – they were shorter, two shorter par fours, and they were back in the trees more than the rest of the golf course. So those are the ones that they wanted to lose out of the routing. So we had to change around some more in order to make it make up for the three holes that we took out. They're now practice holes. Um, so very long-winded way of how we 
how we did that. But so the new core, the the new part of the Renaissance Club. There's a par three when you you know when you play to the when you walk toward the green. All of a sudden, you're kind of coming around the corner and the Fidra Island and the lighthouse come into view, and it's like spectacular. And if you've never been there for the first time, it's like holy cow! I can't believe they built a hole there. And then you have to walk back in between all the patches of dune grass and moss that they didn't want us to touch to get to the back tee of the the 10th hole, which will be the fourth hole for the tournament. Um, but it's a cape hole playing along a cliff just above the beach looking over at the lighthouse. It's spectacular. And it's like, I honestly can't believe they let me build a golf hole. I mean, we built, we're, we're right on the edge of the cliff looking down at the beach. And the only reason we got permission to build is because somebody had planted buckthorn along there to uh, stop people from wanting to come up from the beach, basically. It's, it's, don't get on our the Duke, property. The Duke didn't want the people coming right. up. <laughs> and, and the buckthorn is not a native plant. And it, it gets, once it gets big, it sort of starts choking itself out and dying back. And then you get like wind erosion and problems because because it starts going away on its own and nothing else comes in to replace it and it just the, the land the land gets torn up pretty fast. So the environmental people wanted us to take all the buckthorn out and then it's like, you know, it'd be pretty hard to revegetate that with all native plants, but they let us plant grass on it to revegetate it. So we could actually play a fairway right along there. <laughs> <laughs> which I did not see coming, but it was a really happy accident that it worked out that way. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, we thought we'd be down in the sand dunes more and it turned out we, we were, were barely down in there at all, but we got, we got visually at least the most dramatic holes that we could have got by adding the two that we did. Um, so St. Patrick's, St. Patrick's is different. I mean, you know, the Renaissance Club, once you get inland from those holes, it's not flat, but it's flatter. You know, you, it, the undulations are all like the small-scale fairway kind of undulations you see on links courses. You know, in general, Scottish links are generally flatter and not so flashy, and Irish links are bigger and more dramatic, at least the ones that that are the famous ones that people go to. You know, mm-hmm. Troon is low-grade rolling stuff. Bally Bunyan is big crashing undulations and playing between two big dunes. And, you know, that's the difference between St. Patrick's and the Renaissance Club, too. Mm-hmm. St. Patrick's is much more dramatic visually. Um, you, you're, just, you're not playing right along the water as much as Barnboogle or Pacific Dunes. I mean, you know, no place does. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, but most links courses don't either. I mean, you know, Bally Bunyan is the real exception to the rule there. La Hinch is not, you know, it's a great golf course and a beautiful site, but, and it's, you know, it's pretty, but there's only actually the third hole. The third hole is the only one that's, that's right along the sea and along the beach. And then you've got the 12th hole along the river. And I guess that new par three they added is kind of up in along the, along the sea. But there's only two or three holes that are really close to the sea, and that's what St. Patrick's will have too. Mm-hmm. But there's a bunch of pretty holes. 
Yeah. That we don't have to, we don't have to work hard to make them pretty. It's there. Dramatic dunes. And, uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's cool. And it'll be something for all golf fans. And the thing about Ireland for the East Coast is easier to get to Ireland than it is to get to uh, West Coast in terms of flight, flying time. Yeah, so. yeah, certainly. If you're from New York, it's uh, it's not that hard a trip to get to the the north of Ireland. Um, it'd be like the first thing you could land on if you if you had your own plane. It's super simple to get there. <laughs> yeah. And they already have a hotel and everything, so that'll be that'll be exciting. Yes, I mean, f- from our perspective, the coolest thing about it is, um, you know, they already run a go- golf operation. You mm-hmm. know, it's pretty easy. Other than hiring a superintendent for the new project, we don't really have to. We don't have to make create a bunch more infrastructure. You know, we have to have a little shed to store some of the equipment over there, but we're sharing equipment with the other golf courses and. And it's, you know, it's a pretty simple thing to ramp up to and, and, you know, open a few holes as soon as they're ready to open a few holes. Although we'll have a separate clubhouse, you know, the, the clubhouse will be in the middle of the site for St. Patrick's with the golf course revolving around it. We couldn't figure out a way to, you know, it was at the far end of the old Tom Morris nine or Sandy Hills. So it didn't really make sense to try to shuttle people out there. And we, those weren't the holes we would have wanted to start on right when he got to the fence anyway. So construction will start in a couple next couple of weeks for this? Yeah, we actually built we actually built a couple of greens there last summer. Okay. Um, we had the time and it was sort of a test case to see how easily we could do it and kind of what we wanted the greens construction method to be. Um, and one of them it was it was one of the areas that was like that had been torn up a little from that previous attempt 10 years ago. So we were stabilizing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're going to start shaping greens in earnest this summer. And, you know, we're hoping to do a lot of the creative work on the greens and bunkers and plant all that stuff this fall. But then we'll have to come back next year and do most of the fairways because, you know, we don't, we don't have the irrigation infrastructure right now to do all the fair, to do all the fairway work at the same time. So it's probably still two years away from opening, even though a lot of the cool stuff will get shaped this year. Neat. Since we're on the topic of Ireland, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, what are your thoughts on Portrush with uh, this year's Open Championship coming up? Well, I'm interested to see see them play that course. I mean, it was it was always one of my favorite courses over there, and you know. A lot of the, a lot of the famous open championship courses, um, surprisingly, the greens designs are pretty dull because either they're very old, just natural lay the gr- lay the green on the ground type of green sites, or you know they were built before the golden age for the most part. I mean, the, of the of the of the courses they play the open on. You know, St. Andrews greens are special, obviously. They're just, you know, but th- those are pretty natural. Um, but like Troon and Carnoustie and um, Birkdale and Litham, the greens are not, there's not that much going on on a lot of them. 
Uh, Muirfield's got a great set of greens, I think. Uh, Royal St. George's has a really cool set of greens. It's older, but it was, you know, Mackenzie did a few of those, and a couple of other architects did work after the fact. Port Rush is H.S. Colt from start to finish. You know, there was an older, you know, I think they've got, they got 36 or 45 holes there now with some little course for women and children. But um, originally it was an 18-hole place. There was an older golf course, but Cole turned it into 36 holes in 1920. And, you know, the one thing that kind of bummed me out was that the second course there, which wasn't as long or strong, I thought was a terrific golf course. And they sort of stole some of the best property off that to build the two new holes for the Open. So, you know, to get the open, they took the other golf course backwards, and I thought the the other golf course was really fun, too. So I was kind of sorry to see that happen, honestly. But what they what they wound up with is a is a you know, true championship course with a great set of greens all built by one guy, or except for the two new holes, and you know, a really consistent design feel to it, like most of the great courses in America. Instead of what you normally see in the UK, where it's kind of a mishmash of three or four evolutions from the mid 1800s to now, with uh, Harry Colt, a, you know, he's was arguably one of the most influential. I mean, he was one of the most influential people in golf architecture. Some would argue he was the most influential. Yeah, but in America, he's very little is known about him because he didn't design that many golf courses here right. for people just kind of what are, what are your thoughts on Harry Colton? A few, you know, design qualities that people that we'll be able to get from viewing the open that oh, are unique to him. You know, I don't know if I know how to typecast his golf courses. Um, you know, the first thing I'd say he's, he's probably, he might be the the most influential of all the golden age architects because you know not only because of all the great golf courses he built in the UK and in Europe but he didn't really like to travel so he wound up sending his partners Allison and Mackenzie <laughs> to travel and do golf in some of the rest of the world. Um, you know, uh, most of the cult courses in North America or the ones with his name on them are actually Allison's. Allison lived in the, in the States in the twenties and, you know, had an office in Detroit and, you know, did Milwaukee Country Club and redid the Country Club of Detroit and did the courses in Tor Toronto Golf Club and, and you know, a whole bunch of golf courses, mostly in the Midwest. They didn't compete so much in the East Coast. You know, Flynn and Ross and everybody were tilling house were so busy out there, they didn't try to compete with that. Allison came to the Midwest where there was, you know, where there weren't as many well-known architects to compete with and just soaked up, you know, doing the best course in a lot of the big cities in the Midwest in, in a very short span. Um, Colt only came, I think he only came to America once. 
in like 1912, 1914, somewhere around there. He did the original course for the Country Club of Detroit, of which there's only a few holes left. They changed the it used to kind of go toward the lake, and it doesn't do that anymore. Um, uh, and I think he did Toronto Golf Club, and he he gave his input on Pine Valley to George Crump. <laughs> but then you know, once the war came, he just he didn't want to travel back and forth. He hated traveling. He didn't even like making a long train trip. Smart man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can relate. I can relate to not wanting to do that. And of course, by then he was older. I mean, he was, you know, he was older than Mackenzie and, and Allison and the rest of them. You know, he, you know, he'd spent years being a solicitor and a club secretary before he was a golf course architect. So he didn't, you know, he liked the work, but he had plenty of work close to home. He didn't have to go to Japan to do that. He didn't have the ego where he really wanted to. Um, so, you know, Tokyo Golf Club did contact Colt originally. That's who they wanted to come over to design their golf course. Colt sent Allison instead. And Allison stayed and did the five best courses in Japan while he was there. <laughs> um you know, it's funny. I just thought of this as like back then. You've probably he probably could have just said, "Oh yeah, I'm coming over," and it could, he could have sent Allison. Nobody <laughs> would have known it wasn't him. <laughs> uh, they would have known. They the only would have known because it's funnily enough. I mean, I I've only I've read that story once or twice, but in Australia that might have worked because <laughs> there wasn't much crossover between Australia and Britain at that point. Although Alex Russell did go play like in the amateur and the uk and stuff so he probably would have known mm -hmm. that he might have kept quiet <laughs> um but uh you know the clients and the the powerful the influential people in japan actually had a, a lot of them had been educated in the uk uh -huh. they that's where they learned golf is they went to school at oxford or cambridge or somewhere and started playing golf and then they went back to japan and there was crap for golf courses in japan so they wanted, you know, they wanted the best UK architects to come help them. Interesting, and that's and that's why you didn't. Have, American architects were never contacted to design. Right. And it's, exactly. That's really interesting. I never had, had thought about that. That will do it for this episode of the Yoke with Doke. Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Thanks.